to you. Proverbs chapter 19 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. We're currently in the book of Proverbs. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, it's important on Sunday nights to have a Bible to follow along. And men are coming up the aisles with Bibles. Just get their attention by waving to them and they'll get a Bible into your hands and then you can follow along. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you. So we pick up things tonight, chapter 19, verse 23. I think the book of Proverbs is interesting when all of us come to it from a little different place in life. I like to think of it as um, just our Heavenly Father, and He is spoken of as a Father, coming alongside us, putting His kind of arm around our shoulders and just imparting His wisdom to us. So they're never just kind of like dry sayings on the on the page to me. They come from a Father's heart, our Creator's heart for us so that we uh, don't become casualties of our own wisdom or casualties of the wisdom uh, of the world. And I don't know what your upbringing was like. Um, I never had a father who, I can't remember one time where an arm was put around me and said, son, let's, let's look at this a little different way and let me tell you, give you a little bit of wisdom about that situation. That never happened once in my life. So I don't say that to make anybody uncomfortable or anything, but when you come from that kind of a place in life, then the Proverbs become all the more important because you get into adult life and then you realize, wow, I knew I didn't know much, but I didn't know I didn't know this much. And uh, people looking at you, expecting you to be further along emotionally and mentally and in your conduct than anybody was willing to pour into your life up to that point. So it's a very steep learning curve. And the book of Proverbs is our Heavenly Father coming alongside us and saying, all right, I'm going to impart to you what might have been uh, missing a little bit. I did grow up with two sayings. My mother had two sayings that she was kind of famous for. And uh, she said one of them was... um, it's an unfair world, was, uh, perky. Uh, and then the second one was two wrongs don't make a right. And uh, so we got this, uh, we, we were fighters a little bit, and she had to let us know that that's not going to really help anything. So I was thankful for those two, but I'm really thankful that there's like 30 per chapter in this, this particular uh, book. Chapter Chapter 19, verse 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life. And it's talking about abundant life and, and uh, life as God intends it, which is the best life that a person can live. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction and he will not be visited with evil. And so the fear of the Lord's kind of out of fashion, even among Christians today, isn't it? Oh, you'll frighten everybody away. Nobody will come to the church because you're talking about the fear of the Lord and heaven and hell and all these different kinds of things. Well, the Bible's pretty unashamed of this stuff. Uh, God is. And so he speaks in this proverb of the fact that the fear of the Lord, it leads to a satisfying life and it leads to a safe life. You think about the number of dangers in life that the book of Proverbs uh, steers us away from and then the quality of life that it steers us into. And so the fear of the Lord, it leads to a satisfying and a safe life. Now you thought um, we've been reading different Proverbs on lazy people all the way through the book of Proverbs, but verse 24 is really getting there. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. So he's got his food there and he just puts his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Now that's lazy. The food, you put it right in front of him. He goes so far as to just put his hand in it, ruin it for everybody else. And, uh, and he won't even bring it up into his mouth. So he's too lazy uh, to feed himself, even when the food is right in front of him. You think about the Proverbs that so many of them speak of uh, talking about um, with God's great compassion toward the poor, um, but uh, his impatience with uh, the lazy and that that's something that is uh, not a trait that he wants to characterize his people. And so there are people that are lazy. I mean, the the number of Proverbs just tells you how many that there are. It's one of the problems, of course, with 
a nation like ours or any nation that uh, offers like a welfare program and that, who's the person that's uh, truly poor and hustling and trying to make it, needs a little bit of help, and then there's a whole world of people that, man, if they don't have to work, they won't work. If you won't bring your hand out of the bowl and and take the Captain Crunch and get it up into your mouth, then uh, you've... Uh, you're lazy, and uh, so it's, it's kind of hard how the two intermingle. It's tough to separate. Verse 25, strike or literally flog a scoffer, a person who's given to mocking, and the simple will become wary. So when you discipline a scoffer or a mocker of the things of God or a mocker of his laws and, and then the consequences uh, come related to it, even if the scoffer doesn't learn uh, from the discipline he receives, it does have a broader deterrent effect. There are other people, his children or um, his family or friends or neighbors or society watches it. And if he's unwilling to learn, it doesn't mean that the flogging was useless because a whole world of people are watching it and they're learning, okay, the path of the scoffer, especially the scoffer of the things of the Lord, is it a path that I want to be on? Rebuke one who has understanding and he will discern knowledge. And so you've got to flog a mocker, but uh, a mere verbal rebuke is enough for a discerning uh, person, and that's a characteristic of a discerning person. You just say, "Hey, listen, look at, okay, mm, got it, all right, yeah, hey, don't bring out the whip. I gotcha. Won't happen again." Verse 26: He who mistreats his father and chases away his mother. The idea is he chases her off of the property, out of the house, out of the home. Oh, that kind of a child is a son who causes shame and brings reproach. We see a lot of that um, increasing, kind of the elder abuse and the abuse of children, adult children toward their very elderly uh, parents. That kind of stuff is, is increasing. And so this is talking about physically abusing or threatening parents after all that most parents have done uh, for their children, he says that it's despicable and it's shameful, and it really is a terrible, terrible thing. Unfortunately, it does exist, and so that's why God addresses it and he rebukes it. Verse 27, cease listening to instruction, and the idea is godly instruction, my son, and you will stray away from words of knowledge. And so the idea is keep growing, keep growing in uh, listening to instruction. The idea is God's instruction and uh, that growing in instruction, God's word, it keeps us from straying into all kinds of problems. And that, that whole idea of uh, uh, if we cease learning, then we're going to stray that need to hear things over and over and over again. Sometimes we, um, as Christians, and we're going to attend a church for any length of time or that kind of thing, we're going to hear truths over and over and over again for the simple reason that we need to continually be hearing those things and reminded of them. And uh, I don't know, when you were raising children, did you just tell them one time and it was like, all right, that's it, never have to tell me again. No, we had to tell them pretty pretty frequently and uh, until this thing got settled in their life. And God's the same way with our lives. And so we forget things. He reminds us of things. And it's, uh, and it's very, very uh, important. So sometimes, yeah, I already know that. Yeah, but we need to be reminded because we forget a lot. Verse 28, a uh, dis, ugh, one of them, uh, witnesses, scorns justice. And so this one is someone who lies in a court of law. And the mouth of the wicked devours uh, iniquity. And so another condemnation of witnesses who lie in uh, a court of law. And uh, he says, uh, and the writer declares that there's a certain number of people who do that out of some kind of an insatiable uh, appetite for sin. Judgments are prepared for scoffers and beatings for the back of fools. And so here are things that go together when warnings go unheeded. And so judgments uh, go together for scoffers, punishments for 
fools. Chapter 20, verse 1. My wine is a mocker. And so wine refers to uh, alcohol that comes from grapes. A strong drink is a brawler. So now here you have stronger alcohol beverages that come uh, from grain. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so uh, a warning in the Old Testament here that uh, about the potential dangers of the consumption of alcohol. And so whether it's uh, something that's made from wine or grapes, rather, from uh, wine or strong uh, drink that's made from grain. They both lead men astray, and it mocks a person. In other words, it makes a fool out of them. It makes men into brawlers. And you think about how many things happen. got the big um, kind of discussion, national discussion that's going on right now related to the uh, legalization of marijuana. And uh, is it Colorado? It's Colorado. I know that for sure. They cannot keep it in stock. What a shock. So Colorado. And then is it Washington or Oregon? Is it Washington? Washington? Okay, so I'm, uh, so those two states, and so now the whole thing is, and of course the government, anywhere thing they can tax you know, is on the table for legalizing it, all the arguments back and forth that are being made and, um, in, in, in terms of this. And then one of the cases is, well, if you're not going to do this, then you've got to outlaw alcohol or you're just going to be hypocritical in, uh, in your position. But uh, you talk to anybody who counsels, does marriage counseling, does individual counseling. You talk about, um, uh, you know, drug and alcohol centers. You talk about people who live where their finger is close to the pulse of the damage that is done by alcohol and uh, how many children are brought into the world unexpectedly, conception occurring because of alcohol and then the problems that are associated with that and, and the beatings, the brawlings, the terrible things that happen within marriages and all. And, and so uh, it's, the warning here is best to stay away from alcohol, whether it's wine or beer or whether it's strong drink. We talked a little bit about it this morning in the sermon, and the same things hold. The wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. And this proverb is a warning against rebelling against law and order. And so it's talking about a king who exercises his role uh, for law and order very, very strongly and effectively and uh, that there needs to be a fear within society of breaking the law, a fear that is comparable to the fear of running into a lion who is very, very hungry. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good fear. Uh, remember Daniel, when they uh, uh, put Daniel in the lion's den and the whole setup that was there and all, and the lions didn't uh, eat him uh, and all. And then the next, uh, the next day when all of these... Uh, dreamers and counselors and all to the king. Uh, they were then thrown into the lion's den and it w- says that the lions ate them before they even hit the ground. So they were very, very hungry. So I never want to run into a lion really anywhere um, ex- except at the zoo um, and certainly not on the loose and not a hungry one. But this is the idea is that Law and order should be so strong within a culture and a society that that's the kind of fear that is in the criminal and not the other way uh, around. And I was reading the Modesto B yesterday a little bit, and at least the headlines, and they're talking about the crime rate here. And I think it's, um, you know, so f- like 15% of property crimes uh, ended up, you know, burglaries and this kind of thing and homes, you know, taken away from the homes and all. 15% solved. They're just swamped. There's not enough feet on the ground and all. So it's, things are different from how God says there, there needs, uh, uh, needs to be. There, uh, there should be fear in the hearts of those that are, are criminals and not the other way. Uh, around And then you think about this, you think about it in the context of one day uh, standing before the Lord. I wouldn't want to stand before the Lord one day having rejected his son. Uh, so there should be a, a fear. We're going to fear the law and order among men, how much worse 
uh, to stand before the Lord one day trying to come up with an excuse for having rejected the salvation found in his son. Verse 3, it's honorable for a man to stop or to cease striving in, in a fight uh, since any fool can start uh, a quarrel. And so, in other words, this proverb tells us that we shouldn't allow pride to keep us from walking away from an, uh, an argument. A person that will walk away from a fool who has picked an argument with them uh, is not being cowardly. That person is uh, being honorable as opposed to being a fool. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. So in life, and the more brutal society becomes, uh, the more unhinged it becomes, the more violent it becomes, uh, the more verbally abusive it becomes, and it's becoming more so uh, literally by the week uh, today. Uh, it's important to realize that any fool can start a quarrel. And so if a person isn't going to be drawn into arguments with fools, sooner and later in life we have to learn to walk away from those kind of arguments. And it's just good to have that proverb planted in our hearts so that one day somebody gets in your face and anybody can start that argument, you don't have to engage it, you don't have to escalate it, you don't have to give it the time of day. The honorable thing is to look and say, this is a foolish person trying to pick a fight with me, and the honorable thing is not to let my pride get the upper hand in it. I'm going to walk away from this and to walk away from it. The lazy man, verse 4, will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. And so in Israel, winter was the planting season uh, in ancient times. And so if you fail to plow, you can't properly plant. And if you don't plant, you're not going to end up with a crop. And uh, so then when the harvest time comes, you're going to go hungry. And, and so harvests come because of hard work. And that's true of most of life and something, again, that the lazy need to realize that winter and cold and hardship and discomfort are not legitimate excuses for not working. It's cold out <laughs> Get out there. It's not a good excuse. Verse 5, counsel is in the heart of a, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water. It's in there, but it's down there, deep streams. But a man of understanding will draw it out. A gifted counselor is one who will pose questions to a person that causes them to see kind of for themselves. What's at the core of, of their problem or at the bottom of their dilemma? And you ask the right questions, you ask the right questions, they answer those questions, and then they uh, gradually the person begins to discover the answer to their problems themselves. And most problems for the counselor, someone who has some experience in that, and the Spirit of God's working through their life, is they can see the problem pretty quickly, and they can see that a person very often is very uptight about uh, something that's important to them, but it's just a symptom of their problem. The real problem is deeper. It's this issue, and you'll never fix this until you fix this. And so the counselor then begins to ask questions until they discover, ah, here's what the real problem is. Ask questions about how to handle that. They begin to say, well, it needs to be handled this way in light of God's word. And then they head out of the office and somebody comes up to them and says, well, did you go see Pastor so-and-so for counseling related to your problem? Yeah, I did, but he's really not much of a counselor. I mean, I ended up answering all of my questions. And they walk out of the place and they don't realize that uh, someone has been given the wisdom of the Lord to help them understand uh, what, uh, what it is that they're facing. There's something about truths that we have discovered for ourselves, or at least we believe we have, that we will hold on to much stronger and much longer than if somebody just tells us 
what it is that we need to do in, in the situation. Now, if a person can't figure that out that way, you can't lead them, then, of course, we do that. But there's something wonderful about a counselor that is able to do uh, exactly that. Most men will proclaim each his own goodness. Women, amen. But who can find a faithful man? So the first part of the proverb says it isn't hard to find people, talking about men and women, who profess to be good and to be loyal. But then the second part talks about the fact that then actually finding one who is good and loyal, that's another subject. So the separation between who and what we think we are and what we actually are, our capacity for uh, self-deception, it speaks about that, that great separation. And, of course, the solution to that is to read the Bible. The Bible's likened to a mirror in the Scriptures. So you pick up the Bible. You've heard me say it many times, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? <laughs> I just hate having them say my name over and over again. Now, you go to the Word of God, and it's always faithful to speak to us about the separation between what we think we are and what we are in our minds and what we actually are. And that's a very healthy and priceless thing uh, to have. The righteous man walks in his integrity, and his children are blessed after him. So the rewards of a righteous man or a righteous life, righteous woman, will outlive, always outlive that righteous person. Because the righteous person will not only live well himself or herself, but they'll also leave a very blessed legacy uh, to their uh, children, all because of their uh, uh, godly living, their willingness, their, uh, their unwillingness to compromise God's word in any way, and that gives their children and the generations after them uh, something precious to think about. When they think about mom or they think about dad, they say, that's my dad. That's my mom. You know, so it's a valuable thing to to have. So a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. And so, again, this is a proverb for the wise king or the wise leader who uses his throne to establish justice as the prevailing tone of, of uh, his kingdom. Tough on crime, tough on criminal behavior, and uh, putting fear in the hearts of the bad guys. And it's a weak king who does uh, otherwise. Uh, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, known as the millennial reign of, of Jesus, uh, following his second coming, he will reign as a king in this world, and the Bible says he will rule with a rod of iron. There will be no monkey business. Everybody can leave their doors of their house unlocked. You won't have to have all of those gizmos on your steering wheel in your car and all the other nonsense that we do. Uh, it, the fear will be in the heart of anyone that wants to violate his law. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from sin. Well, nobody can say that because every single one of us is a sinner. And since none of us can deny, the proverb is saying, none of us can deny that we are sinners, then we need to ask ourselves, well, who then can cleanse me from my sin and give me a clean heart and free me from the bondage of my sin? And, of course, Jesus is the answer to that question. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. He can make our heart clean. And then Proverbs chapter 2, or Philippians chapter 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He is able to not only cleanse our lives, but to give us a supernatural longing now to live a holy life and then the ability to live that life. Nobody should ever not come to the Lord saying, I don't want to commit my life to the Lord. I don't want to become a Christian because there's no way that I can live that in an, on my own. Well, nobody can live the Christian life 
on our own. It takes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into our life when we become a Christian, and he provides us with a strong, strong, supernatural desire to do right, and then the power uh, to do it. And so this proverb is an exposure to the glaring weaknesses and limitations of the self-help movement today. Uh, It fails uh, everyone at the point of their greatest need, our need for forgiveness and our need for the ability to live a clean life. And uh, that's far beyond my own ability to do so. Only God can do that for us. Verse 10, diverse weights and diverse measures, uh, they are both alike an abomination uh, to the Lord. And we've seen this several times now in the book of Proverbs, the condemning of dishonesty in business. Even a child is known by his deeds whether what he does is pure and right. In other words, the basic nature of a child is revealed very, very early in their life, whether that child's going to be aggressive by nature, going to be passive by nature, going to be selfish by nature. Uh, They're all selfish, but some of them are extraordinarily uh, selfish. Some of which ones are going to be honest and open and transparent more than others, and which one of them are uh, sneaky, you know. And uh, we had, I remember one time we were in, it comes to mind, we were in a foster home, my brother and I, in Las Vegas. I think we were five years old, four or five years old. And I don't know how many foster kids they had in this house. I mean, there were dozens and dozens of them. And uh, they would have the social workers would come in because <clears throat> they're making money off of it. And, and it wasn't a terrible place to be at all. But they had too many people in there. So they would come in, the social workers would come in to number the kids and all of that. And they'd run the rest of us into like this uh, room down in the basement to hide us. And then and we would alternate groups, you know, and all. But Gabe and I, we wake up. One time they gave us a dessert. We didn't get dessert very often, but they gave us dessert. One cookie each, one night after dinner. And we had that. And that just wasn't satisfying and uh, so we got up in the middle of the night, went down into that kitchen. This place was a compound. It wasn't a house. We found those cookies and went back up into our rooms, and underneath the covers, we ate the whole bag. But we weren't, we weren't very sophisticated. There were crumbs all over, and uh, we left the bag and <laughs> under the blankets all. We got busted. So we've been sneaks from way back. I mean, just Jacob is in our... Uh, in our very uh, bones. But there's an old saying, the child is the father of the man. It basically communicates the same thing here. What you, what you see in a child, you're going to most likely see uh, in the man. Of course, God makes us into entirely different uh, people. And so the idea is this is why it's important to fashion a child earlier rather than later. We talked about a little bit last week where they talk about with kids with languages that they can learn uh, two, three, four, seven languages when they're kids. It's like almost effortless for them. And uh, there's a certain block of time where they can really absorb that. Later on, they'll have trouble remembering their English lessons. And, um, and so the same thing, though, there's this window of time where it's especially productive to fashion them and mold them toward righteousness. Uh, we get saved a little bit later in life. God's able to do the same miracle. But uh, better for the child and the parent to start uh, the earlier the better. The ear, hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. So you got the eye gate and you got the ear gate. Why did God give Adam and Eve eyes and ears when that Garden of Eden, everything was about a relationship with him? He gave us eyes and ears to be used supremely in growing in our relationship with him. And so that's the highest use of our uh, sight and of our hearing is to <coughs> grow in the things of the Lord and uh, to allow into our hearts and our minds the things that glorify him and, and thus are good for us. Uh, do not love sleep lest you come to poverty. Now, it's important to sleep, but not to love it. Uh, do not love sleep lest you uh, come to poverty. Open your eyes 
and you will be satisfied with bread. So we could translate this, get out of bed and go to work. It's kind of like that. Get out of bed and go to school. Okay. All right. We've heard it. We've heard it in our lives. So that's basically what the proverb is saying. So sleep is important. It's necessary. I so enjoyed Pastor Tom's message last time that he taught. And we do need sleep. Our bodies need the rest. We need that. <clears throat> but we're not supposed to become addicted to sleep to where now we're neglecting our job, neglecting our responsibilities uh, as a result of that. Unless you can find a job that pays you to sleep. You, sl- you sleep? Oh, boy, come here. We're hiring right now. <laughs> Please let me know if you've got somebody that's hiring for that. No, no. People pay us to work, not to sleep. And uh, so if you love sleep too much, you're going to end up being hungry. Again, that we have the phrase, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. It's kind of saying the same thing. Verse 14, uh, it is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone his way, then he boasts. Man, I got the deal right there. So kind of... Uh, Craigslist kind of a deal here. So here's the sales technique that the buyer uses in order to take advantage of the seller. Most of the Proverbs are written to warn the uh, buyer against being taken advantage by the seller, but this one flips things around. The guy that comes in, you ever sell a car, try to sell something to somebody, and he's one of these guys. And... You know, all you're doing is praying, Lord, just, I just want, this is a good deal, it's a good price, it's fair, it'll be good for me, it'll be good for the other person. And they come in and they look and, oh, you got a little tar under here and you got a little thing here and it's like, oh, it's a little, looks like a little wear on the seat. Yeah, it's 15 years old. <laughs> it's right in the ads. Of course, there's going to be a little wear on the seat. That's why I'm not selling it for $40,000. I'm selling it for $6,000. But they come in and they try to work the whole thing, and, uh, and then they leave and then they boast, boy, I really you know, took advantage of that guy. And that's no more pleasing to God than, uh, uh, than the, the seller who takes advantage of the buyer. So God warns against this kind of person. And it's okay to just say, Bye. I'm going in the house, and uh, I'm not selling to you. Verse 15. There is gold, and uh, there is gold, and a multitude of rubies. But the lips of knowledge are precious jewels. So, what makes gold and rubies valuable? It's rare. That's what makes these things valuable. And so, what's even rare still? is the person who possesses lips of knowledge and wisdom. So the proverb says, better to be adorned with that than the most beautiful jewelry. Why? Because, you know, later on when that person dies and they go to heaven, people won't say, wasn't that the the guy that wore all those gold chains and big rings or the woman that wore all that jewelry? Now they'll say, you know, that was the guy who uh, really, really knew how to speak the right thing at the right time in a person's life. Uh, the one is esteemed really highly in, in, in life, you know, material way. But the true riches is something different. Take the garment of one who is a surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for uh, a seductress. And so it's foolish to lend to a stranger or to a high-risk uh, person without protecting yourself by requiring some kind of significant security of them that uh, virtually assures that they will repay uh, the loan. And so we see this kind of thing um, built within our financial institutions where uh, the higher the risk, uh, the more that they require of someone in order to get the loan. It's the same principle. They're trying to protect themselves. Uh, They didn't do that great of a job a few years ago, but that's the principle behind it. Verse 17, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Ever had a mouth filled with gravel? I haven't either, but I mean, you can just imagine what it tastes like. And so here it's it's talking about the person who can become very, very prosperous in business through dishonesty, 
but that person is not going to enjoy their prosperity. And so that anybody that builds a business uh, on dishonesty, uh, sooner or later that they're going to uh, end up having a bad taste in their mouth. Plans are uh, established by counsel, by wise counsel, wage war. This proverb, very important, speaks to us about not only being open to advice from other people, but actually seeking advice. And the bigger the decision that we're making, the more important to seek um, advice. You have people who use as a military illustration. You can use it in business where people who are um, highly successful and uh, up in higher levels of a lot of fields in life They're not insecure. They're not threatened by seeking counsel from other people. How do you see this? Let me run this by you. Um, What would you do here? And that's a valuable thing to do. And they give you their perspective because all of us have our blind spots where we're going to run in. All we can see, there's a certain kind of person who all we can see is the potential of something. And we need someone who's a little more conservative to step in and say, yeah, I'm glad you, God made you like that. I'm glad you see that like that. But um, unless you got a quarter of a million dollars to fix this thing up, it's probably not going to work. And they need to hear that voice. And then other people, they are way too conservative. And they need somebody else to say, yeah, that's a safe place to go, but here's what you might miss out on. Here's my experience and all. And so the importance of of uh, getting counsel and getting advice. How many of us have been in a situation in life where we made a decision and then somewhere down the road we realize I could have asked any one of ten people and they would have talked me out of that, but I didn't involve one other person in my decision-making. So it's a healthy thing. Then, of course, always take all input that anyone might give to us Run it against the grid of God's word. It has to match that. And then take it to prayer with the Lord. We don't do anything based upon what somebody else tells us to do. It just helps fill in the big picture, no blind spots, and then say, now, Lord, here this is. What do you want uh, to do here? That's very, very, verse 18 is very, very valuable counsel. Verse 19, he who goes about as a talebearer reveals secret uh, secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. And so you don't want to share uh, too much with someone who's a talker or a gossiper or a talebearer. And uh, concerning uh, flattery, if they praise you uh, to your face, the idea is you're bad-mouthing someone else. Uh, uh, and so they praise you to your face, you know, while you're doing all of that. And the idea is get away from them because they'll do the same thing to you when somebody else is talking uh, about uh, you. And so there's a certain kind of person that knows how to use flattery to loosen people up, to say things that they wouldn't otherwise say, and uh, good just to steer clear of that kind of person. Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out into deep darkness. Under the law of Moses in the Old Testament, to curse your father or your mother, that was a capital crime. Uh, You died related to that. You'd be stoned to death. And uh, there was just like a zero tolerance for that. God was not going to let that leaven of the disrespect of children toward their parents to get a foothold among the children of Israel because he knew what it would turn the nation of Israel into, not just in terms of what we have so much of in our culture today where it's just a mess, the disrespect of children toward parents and the price that are paid on a lot of different levels, but what it would do to the nation that was called by God to bring the Messiah into the world and to bring uh, the Old Testament scriptures into the world. And so uh, it was important that uh, that that respectful order was to be kept uh, in place. And so it teaches us the importance of respect for the authority of parents by children. Verse 21, an inheritance gained hastily at the beginning or early in life will not be blessed at the end. And so this speaks of a person who gets an inheritance uh, too early in life. 
before they have the character and the life experience and these kind of things, the discipline that's needed uh, to make it last until the end of their life. The earlier a person gets an inheritance, the more likely they are to squander it away on things that are frivolous, um, not realizing that the day will come when old age will come, when that money will be very, very important for that, that season, and they will have thrown it uh, all away. So the prodigal son that Jesus uh, described, the first of the two prodigals in his famous parable, illustrated this very thing. He got the inheritance from his dad and, uh, and headed out and wasted it in uh, short order. So there's a lot of truth to the old saying, easy come, easy go. And uh, so wisdom related to inheritances. Don't, do not say, I will recompense evil or repay evil as an act uh, out of revenge. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. You know, the desire for revenge is such a strong, strong thing. Somebody does us wrong and in our flesh, man, we want to just give them that and more. And we want, we want to take our own revenge. And the Bible is just so clear that God says, no vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are not to take vengeance. And the reason is, there are lots of reasons, but a couple of them are, is that we lack the discipline and the wisdom to enact uh, vengeance in a situation. There's the danger we will go too far in seeking our revenge and end up behind bars ourselves or in a lot of trouble. Uh, and, and so the Lord says, you leave that with me. I've got all of the wisdom. I've got all of the facts. I don't misunderstand anything about it. I will take care of that. And you can leave it in the Lord's hands, and he will uh, take care of it. Verse 23, diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. So this is a, several times we've... Uh, you know, read this through the book of Proverbs. So if you're the person he's trying to talk to, would you please get that straight? Um, because apparently there's a lot of that going on. A man's steps are of the Lord, but uh, how then can a man understand uh, his own way? And so this emphasizes God's almightiness, God's uh, sovereignty, and uh, given who he is and what he is, that he's willing to direct our lives. In other words, why would we want to direct our lives when we have a God who is interested in directing our lives? And he knows everything, and uh, he knows what's best for us. He knows us, and uh, so better to hand the steering wheel over to him. I remember many, many years ago, don't feel embarrassed if you had this bumper sticker or a license plate holder, but they used to have one that was popular, God is my co-pilot. Ah, uh, then who's the pilot? <laughs> so the proverb is talking about the fact that, no, you don't want God being your co-pilot. You want him to be the pilot, and you're back there serving sodas to everybody. Let him lead. Give him the steering wheel. It's a snare for a man to devote uh, rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. So warning against making vows or promises to God that we then don't keep. The Bible is interesting because it basically tells us as Christians that it's just best not to vow. God, if you do this, then I'll do this. That's an expression of self-confidence. And best not to do it. Just say, Lord, if you do this, it'll re- you'll really be gracious and I'll, th- I'll be so appreciative. You don't have to say, you know, I'll take on a second paper route and, you know, give that to the church, the money that I make on it. There's no need to do um, any of those things. But if a vow is made, uh, the, then it, it ought to be kept. But best not to... Uh, make vows. Most vows are kind of a manipulation technique. God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Now we're in a negotiation with God. I'm not a very good negotiator. 
You go to Israel, you know, on an Israel trip, and you go down into the old city and the Arab quarter, and you're going to bargain on this and this, and it starts, you know, at $10, and three hours later you got them down to, you know, 89 cents or whatever, and you're trying to leave the shop and 75, and the whole, and I hate, I hate everything about it. Usually on a trip to Israel, we come back by either Swiss Air or British Air or something. We land back into some place where on our way back to the United States where everything in the stores is marked with a sticker. You can either afford to buy that or you can't. And I go, I'm home. I'm in my comfort zone. This is what I understand. I mean, to buy a can of tuna fish is like, you know, twisting your arm. Everything is this. No, no. Oh, please. Something about the Scottish and the Irish. We weren't made for that, apparently. And um, so uh, the, I don't know what in the world point I'm making here related to, oh, it's the manipulation, the whole, you know, I'm negotiating this thing. You don't want to negotiate with God. You're always going to lose, and he doesn't want to be in that place anyway in our lives. Verse 26, a wise king sifts out the wicked, and he brings the threshing wheel over them. So again, the strong encouragement to kings uh, toward law and order And then a strong encouragement to citizens in supporting kings or rulers in uh, establishing law and order for the benefit of society. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord searching all of the inner depths of his heart. And so this proverb speaks to the fact that our conscience has its origin in God. All of us, every human being is born with a conscience. And we have an innate sense of right and wrong. Universally, certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Murder is always wrong. Going to any culture in the world, always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Being honest is always right. Why is there this uniformity about mankind? It's because a conscience has been given to us. And Romans chapter 1, I think it's 14 and 15, talks about that, that our conscience has come from God. Sometimes you'll see the argument where atheists will uh, and agnostics will, uh, you'll have Christians who will say that a person cannot be moral apart from a belief in God. And they get offended by that and they shoot out against it. And, and as they go out a certain distance and they're on solid ground. But what they don't understand is is that the morality that they do have, even as an atheist and as an agnostic, is due to God giving them a conscience. So you don't have to believe in God to have a conscience. Everybody has a conscience, but the conscience has been given by God. And so here is this uh, talking about the fact that our consciences have their origin uh, in God and uh, that place where that our conscience approves or disapproves of the things that we're doing and not only um, the um, not only our outward actions but our motivations, our thoughts, all of these things as well. Uh, it is uh, speaking to us related to all of that. Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. So... Uh, if a person wants to be a king and remain a king for a very, very long period of time, then his reign ought to be marked by mercy and truth and loving kindness because that kind of a king in the ancient world wouldn't be rebelled against. And uh, so that's true not only of related to kings but true of every relationship in life. Um, the greatest way to protect the longevity of a relationship is that we value is to be merciful, loving, kind, and truthful in that relationship. The glory of young men is their strength, their physical strength, their muscles. And the glory of, an old, of old men is their gray head. That speaks about the wisdom that they gain uh, through the years. And so their gray hair. Some of you are in the room here tonight, and you ought to be thoroughly enjoying the second part of that proverb, but you have done things to your gray hair and um, robbed yourself of this blessing. But the proverb, the proverb speaks to the, that every stage in life has its own advantages. 
the youth, young people, they have energy and they have strength and it's a wonderful season in life. It's to be absolutely enjoyed in life because I think it's after age 26 that begins to, you begin a, another cycle and now you're going to lose that strength by degrees all the way through the rest of your life. And then you'll know what it feels like. <laughs> but it's a great season in life to just think it and then be able to do it. Isn't that fabulous? Now you jump over a fence and you've got to get up on that fence. And then... Oh, that is going to kill my hips. Ah. Before you'd ride your bike up on this and do a spin and go off and think nothing of it. So it's a great season in life. It's a wonderful, wonderful time in life. You know, younger people, they go to Disneyland and they don't even notice where there's a, a bench in the whole park. <laughs> Later on in life, all you notice are the benches. In the park. Uh, it's a big shift. It all goes, goes on. The aged, they have the blessing of their knowledge and their wisdom that's gained over a lifetime of experiences. And that really is a blessing. You think it, it would really be a rough exchange to lose your physical strength as you grow, old, grow older and not have something greater replacing it. Because God has done that in your life. To lose everything all at the same time by degrees is a hopeless and a terrible place to be that God doesn't want anybody uh, to be. And so the idea is that both the young and the aged, they bring something important to one another. They bring something important to a church, to the body of Christ. It's complementary. It isn't a competitive uh, relationship. Uh, the young and the old, they make a great team together, and we really do need each other. Verse 30, uh, blows that hurt cleanse away evil, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. And so this is talking about corporal punishment or spankings, that it has a place of in waking a child up to the seriousness of their wrongdoing uh, so that they will stop doing that. And, of course, even though we become adults, you never get away as a child of God away from spankings. They don't take a physical form necessarily where it's like he gets out the paddle or whatever, but he has all kinds of other ways uh, to give us a spanking and to... Um, cleanse us of nonsense and evil that can really be in the depths of our heart. And so uh, an encouragement to do that to our children. We'll stop there tonight. We'll pick it up in chapter 21 uh, next week. We'd like the worship team to come forward tonight, lead us in just a little bit of worship as we close the service, just some time to give the Lord further praise and then maybe to respond to one or two Proverbs that we've looked at tonight and say, wow,